beautiful we're done thank you so much how do you feel i feel fine is that okay like i feel yeah. fine it's very long was it i don't even know no 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 it's fine that was that was a standard amount do you feel okay yeah okay you don't feel like no no i feel okay you feel safe yeah okay. i feel good i feel fine Woman telling her story come on from the heart of the mystery to spell it years of violence we are breaking the silence hello and welcome back to another episode of the cocoon podcast i am your host ruby michaelitis and if this is your very first time listening to the cocoon welcome if it's not welcome back if you don't know who we are We are a podcast affiliated with the Blue Butterfly Institute, a not-for-profit organization that's dedicated to providing advocacy and support for victims and survivors of sexual abuse and trauma. Today's episode guest is with Kim, who is a survivor. She is a mom, she is a public speaker, and she is an advocate and a voice for justice to warn parents about children at risk, to encourage adult victims in speaking up and protecting against themselves and others. And we are going to speak today about public speaking and how to gain confidence and awareness and self-worth in speaking your truth, in sharing your story and not feeling ashamed or fearful about it. It's a really interesting one and I thoroughly hope that you enjoy. Stay tuned. Hello. Hello. Nice to meet you, Kim. Nice to meet you too. So how would you describe yourself to someone that does not know you? I would describe myself as highly engaging, hypervigilant, really overly self-analytical and self-aware and nervous a warrior, always concerned about my kids' well-being and, and everyone else's well-being. I guess I would describe myself as a recovering, people-pleasing perfectionist with trauma issues, really. Yeah, and I think that's so incredibly common with people who, who do have a survivor story. Yes. Um, so with the hypervigilance and the warriors and the, warriors and the people-pleasing, mm-hmm. do you think that is connected to what happened with you and your background? Absolutely, because my story started as a young child, um, continued on through my teenage years, and then I had another major event as an adult. Um, And I think, and, you know, that's obviously been supported by my mental health, like, caregivers, is that, um, you know, the trauma that happened or happens to people as a child really, um, you know, changes their brain. And for me... Um, It taught me compliance and compliance does not keep you safe. Um, And it taught me to keep my mouth shut and that, you know, people don't believe you anyway. And so for me, I lost the ability to identify and respond to red flags, really. Um, And to just 
please people, just to do anything I could to be the good girl who never got in trouble, basically. And that meant that a lot of things were just missed by people through not even any fault of their own. I just became a master of masking. When you are 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and being plied with drugs and alcohol by a grown adult man who's saying those things, you absolutely believe it. It, it forces you into complete freeze. And I would have done anything to keep. And, and the things that he was saying always seemed to come true. Your parents wouldn't believe you anyway. They will keep sending you here or whatever because he was so good. That's what they like. They're so good at what they do. And I think that that's what people need to realize that they groom parents too. It's not just the children. It's, um, you know, it's hard to believe how insidious and how clever they are because they don't advertise it on their forehead that they're, you know, a bad guy. They seem like an amazing guy. They seem like a helpful person. They seem like they're always there for you and they pay for things or provide things or, you know, but any, that, that obviously, you know, shaped my experiences then through my teenage years, um, you know, which led to, you know, common, what happens commonly to a lot of people, you know, pretty significant um, sexual assault from boyfriends in my teenage years, things happening to me that I didn't want to happen that I would even be saying no to, but that during the teenage years, that pressure and coercion, that almost loving coercion, which you don't identify as violent because when you are 15 or 16 and you've got a 17, 18, 19 year old boy that parents really don't like, like to the extent of what happens because it's so uncomfortable. No one wants to have these conversations. Um, but the person who groomed me, um, also pretended to have leukemia. So for a period of literally five years or something, I was going around to this person's house and being sent there to help this person who'd been so good to our family and he's done so much and he's been there for you and we, you know, and because, you know, he was so unwell. So I, as an early teenager, having to cook and clean this person's house and look after them whilst being exposed to drugs and alcohol and, and all manner of uh, abuse. Um, and he eventually died on the 11th of December last year, which is about 30 years later. He never had cancer. So that's the literal extent of the deception that these type of people will go to. Um, he, it lasted until I was, the last time I had any contact with him, I was 18 years old and he had asked my parents if he could take me to, if I could be his companion to take him to America so he could say goodbye to his family. And um, when we got there, he stole my passport and effectively held me hostage in Toledo, Ohio, and told me that he would not give my passport back to me until I had sex with him 
as a consensual adult for the first time, which is ironic because obviously that would not be consensual at all. And um, that was the first time that I ever completely lost my shit. And I screamed and carried on and, you know, eventually he threw my passport back at me across the room and I ran downstairs and, you know, told his family and blurted it all out and they protected me actually. And I, back in those days, took me to a public library so I could email my family and I did. I emailed my family and blurted, you know, so much stuff out and, you know, I was 18 and I had to make my way to Detroit, Michigan and find a flight to LA by myself and find a flight back to Australia and eventually got back to my hometown, Devonport, Tasmania. And um, unfortunately, in those times, nothing ever really happened. And I was, you know, packed up my room and two days later, I moved interstate and I've never lived at home ever again. So the long reaching impacts of that is that I feel like I've lost my family forever. I have lost living with my family, growing up with my family, having my children, um, you know, marriage, marriages, all of these things that I've had to, I've had to build my life completely by myself. And I've never had any family around me. And I've always had extreme anxiety going back to Tasmania um you know in case I saw him in the street and you know and now in older years when you you block everything out for a long time and then in older years you start going you know you start remembering and questioning and going why didn't I ever get taken to the police and things like that you know which there's really no answers for and everyone obviously is impacted and feels terrible about all these things um But, you know, that part of my story is not even something that I ever really discussed or confronted until about maybe about three years ago when I was going to therapy um, because of a rape trial that I was the victim in. So I I got divorced in my mid twenties. I was living in Wagga at the time and, um, I was actually, you know, my, one of my best friends was in the air force and I was at her home and I was asleep on the couch and I woke up and one of her colleagues was literally already penetrating me. So I was asleep on the couch at an Air Force personnel's home. I was raped by an Air Force personnel. And when I got to court in Wagga, eventually, eight years later, um, I reported. I did not report it for eight years because, as I said earlier, like you often don't even, you can't even reconcile in your own mind that, what's happened was not your fault or not okay. Or for me, I was asleep at my friend's house and everything I have ever been taught about sexual assault and rape has been, if you're silly enough to walk home late at night, if you're in a dark alley, if you, you know, it just didn't, this is what I mean about education and communicating effectively with your kids, because 
the correct narrative is not being put out there. Sexual assaults don't happen um, primarily in dark alleys because you're too silly to catch a taxi home. They happen by people that you know. And that you trust. And that you trust. Why would I ever think that a serving member of the Australian Air Force would do that to me? I did not ask for that. I was asleep. And sleeping people cannot consent. And so from the second that it started, it was sexual intercourse without consent, um, which is something that I didn't even grasp at that time. I was so shocked and in such a state of freeze and embarrassment and shame. And I remember the burning cheeks of shame and just being unable to believe what was happening and process it. And when it eventually stopped, I jumped up and I ran into a bedroom and I grabbed the doona and I curled up in a ball on the floor in the far corner of the room. There's no rational explanation for that. I don't know why I did that. I just put myself inside a doona and I rolled up there. And then the next morning, my friend whose home it was because she'd already, she was already asleep when it happened. She came in and said, what are you doing in, on the floor, in, curled up in a ball? And I just made a joke and just said, oh, I don't know. I, don't, I have no idea. Like, not sure what happened. And, you know, for some reason, I just never spoke about it. I could not say the words. Like, I literally, I couldn't reconcile it or identify that that is what had happened. And I couldn't say the words. And for me, and this is what happens for a lot of people, is over the course of time, things will happen that make it come to the surface again because our brains are amazing things at hiding trauma and shoving things away that you just don't want to deal with. Um, It was about eight years later, so in my early 30s at that point, when I I was pregnant with another daughter and my older daughters were early teenagers and starting to want to go out and starting to want to go to parties and starting to want to ride around blocks by themselves and you know all of these things where they're going to be out of my sight and out of my arm's reach and out of my control and around people that I didn't know or trust and I was pregnant with my fourth daughter and it just became overwhelming to me the risk to their safety and then I also started being triggered a lot by um, around the same time there was a lot of things happening in the media um, to women so around that time um Jill Maher and Stephanie Scott were murdered and that was just absolutely devastating to me and I truly had what people would consider I suppose an unreasonable and irrational response to that I was desperately like impacted and very very upset and you know my husband couldn't understand why I was so upset about this and you know all these things and for six months I wrestled with wanting to talk about what had happened to me after eight years, but I couldn't get it past the tip of my tongue. And so I encourage people now to write it down. If you can't say it, write it down and give it to someone safe and trustworthy because it really is so difficult to get the words from your brain out of your mouth sometimes. And so I just think, you know, write it down and give it to someone safe Um, so eventually I 
managed to stutter out what, you know, what I wanted to talk about. I said to my husband, you know, can we talk about this? And, you know, I said, do you remember? And he said, yes, because I had told him what had happened to me way back at the start of our relationship. And it's quite interesting and telling that out of the couple of people that I had told about it, not one of them had even suggested that that was something that I should go to the police about. So it's an ironic thing that years and years later, when I did report it, that a lot of the things that people said to me were, oh, if that happened to you, why didn't you report it then? And my response to that is, well, I told a couple of people and they never suggested that I should go to the police. So why don't you ask them that too? Because that feels really victim blaming and like you have no understanding of trauma. Because if the people I had told hadn't suggested it, you know, I also didn't occur to me. It's just very... (coughs) Yeah, it's just very... And it's also... It's just... And people don't understand... Well, the court process is so scary. It is. The court process is so scary. Um it that's been another major realization for me so after eight years when i did eventually report it um he was charged with sexual assault um well no he was charged with sexual intercourse without consent and it transpired that i was actually his third rape trial in australia He'd had two rape trials in Queensland and he had quite a lengthy disciplinary record in the Air Force, but he had just been moved from place to place. So was it through your court trial that that's when you got inspired to become a public speaker? Um, it, It was after the trial. Um, because it was such a horrendous experience, it really highlighted to me that no one really understands what happens in a trial and a court case and in an investigation. No one really understands what it's like to be inside the courtroom and how poorly victims are treated and how re-traumatising it is and how, in fact, the trial is, by for me personally by far worse than the actual sexual assault itself. And I'm not exaggerating in any form whatsoever. I literally could not speak afterwards. I could not walk. I couldn't swallow. I couldn't talk. I couldn't sit down, but I couldn't stop moving. It was absolutely out of control and it was so mentally painful and I was in such anguish that for the first time ever I truly understood I understood the meaning of the words that you'd do anything to escape the pain I understood why people committed suicide for the first time ever I got it and so it's actually given me so much more empathy for people because I'm I'm not a depressed person and I'm not a suicidal person but in that period of intense trauma I understood how that would feel and I have it's actually given me a lot of empathy for people um and it made me realize afterwards um when I applied for victims of crime compensation um 
I had reported my assault after eight years and it took four years to get to trial. So this is 12 years later. No one ever explained to me about victims of crime. No one communicated with me at all. And so I naturally assumed that you had to wait till the end of the trial. And so I applied at 12 years. So after my rapist being found not guilty due to reasonable doubt, because we could not bring up in court his other rape trials, you know, because it's, you know, you're not allowed to bring up other, you know, trials um, because he had been found not guilty due to reasonable doubt and I had a hung jury previously. And so then mine became not guilty due to reasonable doubt. That was bad enough. But then my victims of crime compensation was declined because there is a, a statute of limitations of 10 years for adult victims of sexual assault. And that infuriated me so much because victim support, no one ever told me about that. Um, and it doesn't make sense anyway. So one of the reasons why I have begun speaking publicly is, and I've been doing a lot of advocacy work with um, politicians, is because I believe that that 10-year statute of limitations, Section 40 of the Victims of Crime um, Act, should be abolished. There is no reasonable reason why there is a 10-year limitation when all of the other statistics and is very, very well known that many, many victims of sexual assault are traumatized and don't even have the capacity to speak about what's happened to them for 10 years, 20 years. You know, there is, there's, and considering that is primarily women victims of these crimes, not to say it doesn't happen to, to everybody, but primarily something like 85% of sexual assault victims are women and something like 98% of those are performed by men. So this legislation is at best thoughtless and at worst sexual discrimination legislated by law and it needs to change. And they've already removed that 10-year limitation on child victims, so they know it's a thing. And so the reason why I speak up about what's happened to me is one, to educate people on how to protect your kids and two, to make people aware of the reality of the court system. We do not have a justice system. We have a legal system. There is no justice in it. It is purely a legal system. And three, to try and advocate for Section 40 of the um, Victims of Crime Act to be abolished because there is, there's just no reasonable reason why women victims who, you know, I got to a point at 12 years where that's that was the date I had come forward, I had been through the trial and that's when I needed to do it. And to have that decline letter, again, was worse than the sexual assault. So what I'm saying is that time after time we keep getting re-traumatised. Victims keep getting re-traumatised. The court case and having my victims of crime denied were both worse feelings for me than being assaulted because it was just another way of saying you don't matter. You are not important. We do not believe you. And it just broke my heart because I didn't even particularly need the money. 
But one of the reasons why I've been talking to politicians is because there are many, many disadvantaged women or women of color or disabled women or elderly women or people at risk of homelessness or who aren't, you know, having access to education or, you know, there are so many women who are vulnerable who actually need that money. And so I think if I've got the capacity and am able, have trained myself to be able to articulate this stuff without, you know, crying, which I used to do, then I should have a voice and speak up about it because I just think it needs to change. And it absolutely does need to change because I had, because I had to study a little bit of the law as well when I studied media and ethics at university. Yeah. And I was studying it when the Hannah Clark case came about, the one in Queensland. Mm-hmm. And to this many. day, coercive control is not criminalised. And rape within marriage or relationships is not seen as a crime. And yet, statistically, that is a high amount of how abuse occurs. And you're right. It's just they do not understand types of trauma around deceit, around deception, you know, assault and grooming. You know, they don't understand kind of the difference between that. And there needs to be more empathy. And I completely Absolutely. understand. I, one of the other things that I truly would like to be an advocate for is that every single judge in this com- country has training or education around um, trauma. What it is, what it looks like and how it can present, how it changes the brain, how it changes memory, how it lives in your body, how it is going to impact the way that you present in court. Because the judge in my trial was absolutely horrible to me. He was so unempathetic and verbally showing me with words how irritated and frustrated he was with me. There was zero understanding of trauma. And I I just, I cannot believe what I experienced even to this day. And I mean, I know it sounds unbelievable that there is more, but after the trial, one of the witnesses said to me, oh, the judge said to me, I don't know if anyone's told you, but I'm actually um, an Air Force Commodore in the reservists. So you can use whatever language and jargon that you want, because I'll understand you because I've been an Air Force Reservist, Air Force Commodore for 20 years in the reservists. So I didn't find that out until after the trial, right? I literally fell apart. That was another example of what completely re-traumatized me. So I was raped by an Air Force personnel at the home of an Air Force personnel. And when it eventually got to trial, the judge of the case was an Air Force personnel. Can you even believe that that could possibly happen? This is absolute corruption. Absolute corruption. This was in Wagga Wagga. And so I made a complaint to the Judicial Commission about the judge and they replied eventually that there was nothing to answer for because the judge had declared that to the Crown prosecutors who didn't raise an objection. So unbelievably, the Crown prosecutors knew that. So it doesn't matter what happens, even on all sides, even the side that's meant to be on your side still 
allow allowed that type of thing to happen like it seems so obvious i mean that doesn't pass the pub test for most australians like there is no way that the judge of my trial should have been a member of the air force that just beggars belief and so you know that was another um kick in the teeth when the judicial commission you know allowed that to be fine to them and so then i thought you know i have not gotten any type of justice whatsoever i along with um a lawyer compiled a 39 point complaint to the inspector general of the australian defense force and they did an investigation and eventually also came back and said there was nothing to answer to that despite the fact that he had a disciplinary record as long as his arm, that he had been moved around the country, he had had three rape trials, that they had done nothing wrong, that I had been told firsthand stories about how he had been showing pictures of his penis to 17-year-old new recruits and touching the thigh of co-workers. And, you know, it was known in the Air Force what he was like. And again the inspector general's office came back to me and said there was nothing to answer for and my complaint was dismissed so at every single turn i have been denied i have been ignored i have had no justice and i think if i am an extremely privileged you know privileged educated articulate young white woman that has all the hallmarks of privilege if i cannot get justice what chance does anybody have that is not as you know in in such a privileged position that i am like women we can't win we cannot win and that's you know where i'm at i don't know what the answer is and unfortunately my story i don't even think it's unique it's not unique there's nothing about my story that's special or unique. It has happened to so many women. Maybe it hasn't gotten to court, but that's because most women realize there's no point subjecting yourself to the trauma of it because it, it literally gets you nowhere. Yeah. I'm just very taken aback by what you've just mentioned to me because it is it's a lot and I've got such empathy that you had to go and experience that and you're right. It's it's too common it shouldn't be as common as it is so while you were just telling me this i was just thinking what inspired you to keep going despite all the shame and the setbacks and you must have felt humiliated and unheard what inspired you to keep moving uh i i was humiliated and hurt and just so devastated i think i was just driven by such a sense of i have um extreme justice sensitivity and that's that's part of you know part of the journey of um therapy over the last five years has been understanding my neurodivergent brain and i i do have you know at times you know rejection sensory dysphoria and um you know justice sensitivity and that's quite common can you sorry can you please explain to the uh viewers what justice sensitivity is to those who don't know yeah sure um a lot of people with adhd and um you know 
that type of presentation have just a sensitivity where we just have a, a higher than normal internal agitation and response to things just not being fair or right or correct or just it's just not fair and a lot of people have the capacity to just let things go and people that really you know do have a lot of justice sensitivity just find that they they just can't shut up they just can't go away they just can't accept that they can't accept that it's not okay and so somehow I just have always dug deep and just been continued on trying to get someone to take accountability and say this was not right. And I have never received that. I have had a lot of really good people say to me that they believe me and that they they know. If, we all know that this happened. Like women don't make this up. Women don't lie. Women don't go to this extreme extent to try and get justice. And I have been driven by this deep need to change culture and to bring awareness conversations and to protect my daughters. I have four daughters and this is not the world that I want them to live in as adults. I I want the conversations to happen and I just I want to feel like it hasn't been for nothing and that's why I keep going with you know trying to um, change the victims of crime act because at least I will feel like I have achieved something and it's been worth something and it's not all for nothing because otherwise I just think every single thing that I've ever been through from the time I was five years old has literally been for nothing that upsets me because I think the thing that people don't realize is from the earliest days of my childhood, that's actually the reason why, because I've said to my psychologist, why have all these bad things happened to me? And it literally is because, you know, my early childhood trauma removed my ability to identify and and respond to red flags. It made me silent and compliant and that puts you at risk and you can't verbalize things and stand up for yourself and identify things and you become a people-pleasing perfectionist who just keeps your mouth shut or freezes you learn that trauma response is to freeze rather than fight and let me tell you i am teaching my kids to fight no one ever explained any of this stuff to me and that's because it's so awkward no one really wants to talk about this stuff i don't want to either none of this should be happening but this is a real issue for women this happens so frequently and it's really just so unfair like we should be able to have that freedom and safety and autonomy over our own bodies and expect that we are allowed to sleep in peace that we're allowed to walk in peace despite what we're wearing and despite what time it is exactly absolutely it just no one's entitled to anything and um you know that's why i keep doing what i do exactly and i think like i can really feel i mean feel like listeners you can't you can't feel this but i your passion is so overwhelming and i just love it i can really see it in your eyes and in your heart and in your spirit that it's genuine and authentic and we need more people like you because you're right it's it we need we need things to change yes and even if they're not going to change completely we can at least attempt to make it more better and understanding and more empathetic at least to our own favor yes so how 
what advice do you have for women who, you know, who want to have these conversations, who want to share, who want to speak out, but they're feeling shame, they're nervous, they're afraid of judgment and criticism and the consequences. What advice would you have for them? You know, probably the first bit of advice I would give is to even just take a step back to if there's any women who have been hurt or assaulted, um, the thing that I have learned is that despite it being so very difficult to come forward, that the best thing that you can do is to re- to speak up as soon as possible to, um, even though it's going to be hard and hurtful and shameful to record the details of what has happened and to tell someone, if you can't speak the words, write it down and give it to someone or send a message to someone and get to the police as soon as possible, hopefully immediately or within 24 hours, you know, to take action early because it is almost impossible to get justice if any period of time has elapsed. Um, it just, it just doesn't, it makes it so much harder to prove, um, the level of, you know, beyond reasonable doubt. That is effectively what I've learned is that, um, the term beyond reasonable doubt can be created in court by any means by the defense barrister. So that reasonable doubt can be created about what, music was playing if you say one thing and another witness says another thing that's reasonable doubt because your memories are off if you thought that you rang a taxi but the taxi was already waiting and you just jumped into it if two different witnesses say two different things well then that's reasonable doubt it doesn't matter reasonable doubt can be created upon any part of the the narrative at all doesn't even have to relate to the actual assault i remember one part of my um transcript was you know made me saying at one point that my pants were 30 centimeters down and you know maybe it was a a different amount of centimeters than another you know another statement two years earlier or something I was you know and that type of thing you know the defense barrister is like oh well funnily two years ago on this date you said you thought perhaps 25 centimeters or whatever it was it it is absolutely reaching ridiculous stuff that they create reasonable doubt around. So my suggestion is to record, write down immediately, absolutely everything that you can recall and get yourself to um, support as soon as early as possible. Um, Because DNA does not save you and it does not also improve your case. I I have read articles with cases that even with rape kits dna even mm-hmm. if there's semen there and it matches the person that you're accusing yes that's still not enough no because he said she said yeah. like and you know the courts and the laws are written generally broadly speaking by men and you know the whole intent of these systems is not actually to protect victims it's really not and it's it's astonishing it's hard to it's hard to believe unless you've gone through it how bad it is so you know one of the other things that i would say is that you just the more you speak about it the easier it becomes 
Um, I think that you need to choose the people that you speak to about, I guess, carefully because you're going to be disappointed in some people that can't give you what you need. And some, you have to just understand that some people do not have the emotional capacity to support you in the way that you need, or they just might not have the capacity to deal with it themselves. So, you know, a good thing is to ask people, do you have the capacity to hear me about this or, but, you know, I think professional support is also really good. There's absolutely no shame in going to, you know, your GP and talking to them about things. And if you need to be on medication, like be on medication, like have tricky conversations. You need to take care of yourself. And that if, if that's anti-anxiety medication or antidepressants or, you know, going to therapy, it's only going to benefit you in the long term in terms of learning how to regulate your nervous system and your spiritual well-being, which really takes a hit when you've had a life time of trauma you know um and just learning to understand that you know you are a valuable person and you do deserve the best and all of the good things in life and that you know the things that have happened to you are not your fault and not your choice and um you know i think that you need to learn how to ignore social media one of my pet peeves is the comment section of every um you know, media report about sexual assault, especially the ones that get found not guilty due to reasonable doubt. And the comment section is full of those. See, I knew it, that lying so-and-so about the woman. Um, you know, I, I, I want everyone in the world to know that not duty due to, not guilty due to reasonable doubt does not mean not guilty. It does not mean that they did not do it. It means that the onus of proving reasonable doubt was too high. And it is the case nearly all the time because it's he said, she said, and there's usually no physical evidence because normally it, it takes, you know, a long time to come forward. So the vast majority of things, you know, if you look at the Australian Bureau of Statistics, you'll see that the vast majority of um, crimes are reported within a few days. But the average time of sexual assault being reported is like over a year or something. So it is a thing that women are known to find really hard to report. Unfortunately, that, you know, does contribute to some extent to how difficult it is to get a conviction. We all want this to change. We all need this to change. It probably starts with our young children and how we, the culture that we're creating and the culture that we live in and, you know, how we communicate with our kids and each other. It's about calling out bad behavior that we see in our friends, you know, just not letting things slide. You know, I've spent a lifetime being told that I'm, you know, uptight or that I can't take a joke or whatever. I don't really care. Like if it's not appropriate, it's not appropriate. Like I think that too many things have been let slide by in the culture that we've created in this country and um, women are not respected and it needs to change.
I completely agree with you with that. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful response. So just a couple more questions. My biggest question and what I'm curious about is what is your advice for people who are experiencing the shame, are not getting believed, are experiencing feelings of humiliation? How do you, what are your advice for them for them to have the self-confidence to keep going, going and to keep trying because it's so common it and is. it's so hard and I've like been in that time and it's it's it, you feel like you're between a rock and a hard place yeah I the only way that the, the periods of time where I have felt like that honestly the only the way that I've been able to move forward is to like um have good self-care and to take I mean a little bit of time off work and to exercise and to, you know, I learned a lot of ground up therapies through, you know, my psychologist, like grounding exercises and breathing and being in nature and just um, meditation and trying to mindfully like take care of my nervous system. Um, I don't think any of us know a lot about that. And, you know, this whole experience has taught me there are so many more things that we should be taught at school than some of the irrelevant, unnecessary things that we are taught, such as all of this stuff. Um, So I think that you really need to be mindful of your self-care and those grounding exercises and things you can do. Breathwork, a huge one, like learning how to do breathwork and meditation. Like, you know, really the only person that can rescue you is you. No one else can do it for you. Um, So learning to breathe through that and let go of the thought that what other people think of you is important and um, to just keep looking for the right people to speak to. Um, It's hard and you also need to accept that you might not ever get the resolution that you're after. And, you know, I don't even know if I'm the best person to answer that because there's periods of time where, you know, I might get that rejection letter and I, it, it sits there for like seven months before I can make the next email. Like this is why things drag out and take so long because I just don't have that capacity sometimes to take action. And I think 10,000 thoughts, but then I can't action them. And so I just put it away. And then something will happen that will make me go, you know, fire off the next email or set up the next meeting or something like that. And, you know the wheels of time turn slowly, you know, when it comes to politicians too and things like that, you know, they'll reach out to me and say, we'll have this great conversation and set up a meeting. Um, They're going to email me and then they don't and things like that. Do you know what I mean? Like it is, it's hard. It is, it's hard to maintain that motivation. I think it's just about finding the right people around you and learning how to take good care of yourself and accessing professional support if you need and speaking like the hardest thing is the thing we actually need to be doing, which is talking. We just have to talk and we need to learn how to not be triggered by people who say unnecessary things to you or dismissive things. That That is like one of the key things is to just learn how to be triggered, not be triggered by because you're going to hear people say things that really irritate your spirit that, you know, 
that indicate that it wasn't a big deal or you misunderstood or it didn't really happen that way or are you sure or, you know, or, oh, well, that's just the way it is or, you know, well, it's the legal system, like it is what it is and things like that, like things that really piss you off. You just need to learn how to not be triggered by that and to just keep moving forward. So... Yeah, and I completely agree, and that was just very inspirational, and I think a lot of people who are listening to this are really going to take so much of your information and your story for that. My final question for you is, what words of comfort and wisdom do you have for the people that are listening to this? Oh, I just love you, and I believe you, and I support you, and you know, just know you are not alone. And there are so many people that have been through what you've been through and would wrap you up if we could. Um, and just, just know that there are amazing days ahead and, you know, everything will be, everything will be okay in the end. And just, you know, we're all just doing the best that we can. I think we all have to, be kinder to ourselves and go easier on ourselves and just know despite what you think you are amazing and you are doing the best that you can and we're all just every day that's all we're all doing is the best that we can we have one life we don't know how long it's going to be so we're just doing the best that we can to get through and we need to you know look after ourselves first before we can look after other people properly we're only going to burn out if we just keep going and going and going and going without acknowledging what's going on for us um so we need to take better care of ourselves you know my doctor's on speed dial i'm there all the time you know take care of yourself you need to have people that know what's going on for you and um there is healing in your words Let your voices be heard. There is healing, there is healing. Let your voices be heard. There is healing in your words. Let your voices be heard. There is healing.